to a new episode of Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Ryan Lister and Todd Miles from Western Seminary and the podcast Food Trucks in Babylon. That's right, folks. This is a crossover podcast. In this podcast, we talk about Van Halen. We talk about Pearl Jam. We talk about apologetics. We talk about the impassibility of God and many, many other things in between. Todd Miles on this podcast this week is the author of Superheroes Can't Save You, an excellent book from our friends at B&H Academic. For more information about this excellent book, Superheroes Can't Save You, and many other great resources from B&H Academic, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. This is Timothy Paul Jones, and I am from Southern Seminary, and I am here with people from Indiana, the distant land of Indiana, from Kentucky, and from Western Seminary in a far, far distant land. And we are together with the Food Trucks in Babylon crossover episode with Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics podcast. And to start off, we've got to do a superhero question, especially since Todd Miles is the maestro author of that amazing book, Superheroes Can't Save You, which was actually one of the early, early episodes on Three Chords in the Truth, like the third or fourth episode was on superheroes can't save you with the amazing Todd Miles. And so with that in mind, let's think about is this episode taking these two podcasts from two vastly different locations? Is it more like an Avengers and X-Men team up where they're in the same universe, maybe both an Earth 616, all in the same universe, everything like that? Is it an Avengers X-Men team up or is it more like a DC Marvel crossover where we have two very different universes being thrown together toward one another and put in comic books that generally didn't turn out really, really well, but we'll leave that. <laughs> in. <laughs> All right. So what is it? As this podcast is going right yes, now. Yes, exactly. Right. exactly. <laughs> Starting with a hard hitting question. I like this. Yes. Right. Is this more an Avengers X-Men team up or a DC Marvel crossover? Which is it more like? Yeah, well, uh, this is Ryan Lister here from which podcast am I in again? Yeah, food, right this here, is yeah. it's, it's food, food trucks and the truth. Uh, yeah, yeah, food trucks in Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> food trucks and the truth. That's it. Oh, yes, there it is. We just did it. We just did it. Yeah, out here in Portland, out here in the nether regions, I guess. I would probably argue that this is a DC Marvel sort of crossover, predominantly because my friend here, Todd Miles, is very much a DC guy. He's committed to that, even in the midst of all these movies. I mean, he'll he'll tip his cap to the Marvel universe. He'll go he'll go watch those movies. I do, um, but he suffers through it, waiting for the DC movies to maybe one day catch up. But I don't know. I don't see it happening. New heavens, new earth. Uh, again, yes, and then Todd always calls me his Robin to his Batman. So I'm that's the way I'm just figuring into all this. I'm not sure I've ever actually <laughs> said that before. I, I think you're hoping. I see it in I your eyes. I see it in your eyes. I was going to say the same thing, not because of my allegiance to DC, but it feels like the superheroes are from Marvel and DC. They're on the side of truth and justice and good and, and, and that sort of thing. And yet in very different worlds. And anytime I go to Louisville, Kentucky, I feel like I'm just in a really <laughs> different universe. And I hear about what goes on at Southern Seminary and it feels just very distant, very distant. That's right. And you could also probably say something to the amount of, financial backing 
you know, the MC, <laughs> MC universe yeah, that's right. has made <laughs> a lot more money than the DC universe when it comes yeah, to the, the box my, office. And so I'm kind of feeling that tension as well. So. We might have to come up with a different comic book <laughs> universe to scale that's down right. yeah. to, what is, to, what is to our budget over here. Yeah, so. Teenage Mutant Ninja. I don't know. Something, something. No, well, they've done some DC stuff. So oh, yeah. my gosh. So, so all, no, we can't even go there. It's all happening here. How about you? I'm going to defer to TBJ first. I'm still mulling this over in my mind. Now, I really think it is a DC Marvel, but I was thinking in a very different way. I just think the Pacific Northwest and where we are, more along the lines of what Todd was saying, the Pacific Northwest is a very different place than where we're at here. It really is. And not only that, I think it's also we're going about truth and good and justice and all of that. But both of our podcasts and our emphases are just different. We're just looking at different things, running on different tracks, but toward the same truth. So I'm going to go with a DC Marvel crossover that is far more like that, but ours is going to be better than the comic books where they did the DC Marvel crossovers, which didn't turn out well, usually. Well, we can hope so. Yeah, yes. we can pray towards that end. So I really like y'all's arguments. Those are all really good. <laughs> all three of y'all. Really? This means he's going to dismiss what we say. <laughs> I do not disagree, but I might make a different argument that one could say that we are more like an Avengers X-Men team up. We are as brothers in Christ in the same universe, right? That we are we are on the same team, though in two very different contexts. And that that here in the southern Indiana, Kentuckiana region, we are very kind of Midwestish, all-American type folks like the Avengers with you mutant-like uh, heroes <laughs> out just, in the Pacific Northwest, right? You, yeah, you even, yep. right? That in a sense, you are heroes, but heroes of a very strange sort. Yeah. So anyway, I think both answers work. I just wanted to, we couldn't all four say the same thing. So, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, most, most of the people out here I would say are trending to look more like Wolverine than people in Louisville, I would assume. But yeah, I, gosh, those sideburns. I wish I had them. <laughs> you can, well, we've talked about Marvel, Avengers, DC, everything like that. But when it comes down to it, I think that at least Garrick and I are not so much DC as AC DC type people. And so that's our transition right there. There we go, right there. That was a master segue right there. But if you call it and say it was a great segue, then it wasn't actually a great one at that point. So, yeah, we, we'll do that. So the other question we often ask on our podcast, which we shall call this one either Food Trucks and the Truth or Three Chords in Babylon, which would actually be a great album name for the Rolling Stones, Three Chords in Babylon. That would be an amazing album title. But if you could play in any rock band in the history of rock and roll, what band would it be and what would you do? Todd, give us this truth. Bring this wisdom that you have about <laughs> if you could play in any rock band in the history of rock and roll, what band would it be and what would you do? Yeah, well, so Journey. I would have to say Journey because I am a child of, of the 70s wow. and 80s. And that <laughs> true story, I grew up in this tiny little town where there was no chance that Journey would ever come unless they totally and completely lost their way. But <laughs> a, a fellow running for student body president my sophomore year, his primary campaign platform was to get Journey to come and do the junior prom. And he won in a landslide. No one cared no one cared that there was no chance Journey was going to ever show up on the south coast of Oregon, but he still won. Did they show up? No. I'm, still, I'm sure he did there. not. I'm sure he never even attempted. So he probably has a great future in politics, right? Just say what will ever get you elected with no intention whatsoever of following up. I mean, you should have impeached him. I mean, yeah. you totally should have impeached him. <laughs> for, for, for failure to keep a campaign promise. Yeah. I am so non-musically talented. I tell That's people that I am the least talented musician He's per right. hour of piano lessons. Absolutely. Endured. Six years of piano lessons endured. I can barely get through chopsticks. So I would have to be just the person in the band who like distributed water bottles and whatever else they wanted to drink. Merch table. You could do yeah. the merch table. Yeah, that, yeah, that that's those, all I'm qualified for. Those are the unsung heroes. Merch <laughs> table. So in a sense, you're saying that this guy was just a city boy, right? <laughs> yeah. Born and raised in South 
South Oregon. Myrtle Point. Well, South no, Myrtle Point. Okay. Well, I mean, to the midnight. There train. is no South Myrtle Point, so so Do it mean, could be. It could. There's be. also no South Detroit. So that's so exactly that's right. right. <laughs> Man, you know, I bet he's still there calling Journey right now, yeah. trying to get them to the prom. Yeah, I don't want to get a Myrtle. I have been to Myrtle Point with you. You have been. There's no way Journey's going to <laughs> Myrtle Point at all. At all. Well, first, I thought Todd was going to say Blue Oyster Cult and maybe play the triangle because I think, or more cowbell, more cowbell. I could have been it. So, I, I, I could have done that. Have you seen that skip? No, I haven't. All right. Well, we've got work to do. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. For myself, I am a child of '90s grunge, and I landed, I landed in Pearl Jam. And so, if I could be anybody when I was growing up, if I could be anybody, this is a really weird place to land. But I always wanted to be Stone Gossard in Pearl Jam. The rhythm guitarist—he has this whole trajectory all the way through sort of that late '80s '90 grunge movement in the in the Seattle scene. And I just loved every lick he came up with. So, Jeez. Sorry, Derek. <laughs> Sorry. You can join me if you want. I mean, Pearl Jam has a lot of rotating drummers. So if you want to be just one of those, <laughs> feel free to jump in. Uh, Yellow Leadbetter. That is, I was just playing that two or three days ago on the guitar. And that is just one of the greatest songs ever. It doesn't even matter that the lyrics make no sense. The Yellow Leadbetter is one of the greatest songs ever. It is a, it's a lovely lick there. And probably he's ripping off Jimi Hendrix the whole time, but it's it's a glorious song. Yeah. Oh, you just crushed me. Do you want me to take it back? Should I do something else? No, I shouldn't have let <laughs> you go first. <laughs> it's a purely sentimental pick. I mean, it, you know, Pearl Jam is one of my all-time favorite bands. It was one of the earliest concerts I went to. I got, fun fact, I got to stand on side stage at a Pearl Jam concert, which King's X opened for, one of Timothy's favorite groups. And I got to pat the back of the singer of King's X as he was coming off stage and told him, good job. And uh, (laughs) my brother, who worked in the music industry, just just made fun of me for decades, decades to come. Exercising that gift of encouragement. That's nice. Well, real quick, Garrick, I I heard a podcast with him where he talked about this young man telling him (laughs) he did a great job. He said, I believe his name was Garrick. So, yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to go backstage that night and didn't get to meet Eddie Vedder because he was not in a state of mind to see other human beings. But I did get to meet Mike McCready and Jeff Ament. I was I was a young bass player at the time, yeah. so that was big for me. I can go with Beastie Boys. I can yeah. do it. Oh, I yeah. can do it because yeah, they have, absolutely. I mean, they started as a <laughs> punk rock band and always, always kept a bit of, of rock throughout their albums. And so that was a big part of my story and I'm going to stick with it. I am still at my advanced age, a, a little, a little bit rock, a little bit hip hop. I mean, come on. Yeah. Can't you see that? You look like you could fit in with the Beastie Boys, actually. Yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. Certainly the, the older version. So yeah, it was either, it was either Beastie Boys or Metallica. I'm going, I think I'm gonna go with Beastie Boys. Very good. Whatever I did, it would be a drummer because a drummer is the one thing I've never been. I've played bass in a band. I've played keyboards. I've done vocals. I've done guitar, but I've never been able to play the drums. And I tried for a long time and could not play the drums. So I think I would go for the drummer either in Metallica or in Van Halen, just because I would like to sit up there and watch both of those bands every night while playing the drums. So anyway, I would go uh, with one of those two. Those are the two huge bands in my life that have been there all the way over the years, through the years. And so I'd have to be either Lars Ulrich or Alex Van Halen would be where I, what I would be if I were in a rock band. So an apologetics question for us. What we've noticed here in our neck of the woods is, is that the, the apologetics questions have changed a bit over the years. That's, that's probably not that remarkable that they change, but they've changed in this way. We aren't spending as much time asking questions surrounding, does God exist? It's more, is God good? And so apologetics has a lot to do in our context 
with defending the sexual ethic of the Bible, talking about those problem passages, thinking through and justifying like the Canaanite genocide texts, those sorts of things. That's the kind of apologetic battleground where we're at here. Is it the same same thing in, in Louisville? I think really that's everywhere right now. As I think about just a couple of years ago, teaching a series on Christian sexual ethics with a group of youth at Sojourn Church in Midtown here in Louisville, where I serve as one of the pastors, that pushback against the Bible's sexual ethic is just huge. And I think I don't think that's slowing down anytime soon. And what's fascinating is just building on that, many of these students who were pushing back against that, they actually believe God exists. Like, they don't have a question about the existence of God. They're not asking, is there really a God? They're assuming and actually believe in God. They just don't want what we find in the God of the Bible is what it comes in, 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 in some sense. And I remember one girl that she came up to me afterwards and she asked the question, which I think is, she put it in words, what a lot of people seem to be asking. She asked, can I just believe in Jesus, but not have to believe the Bible? And that was her question. And I said, well, how are you going to get your information about the Jesus you believe in? Like, what are you going to believe about Jesus? And she said, well, I'll get, and she started naming things that were in the Bible. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you didn't believe the Bible. And what I, I tried to gently do in that is to show it's not that you disbelieve the Bible, it's that you want to believe the Bible selectively. <laughs> you want to believe only certain parts of the Bible that fit with your predispositions on that. But I do think it's true that we are seeing a change in that. And what we have to turn people toward sometimes is for them to recognize that what God gives is good, as in his sexual ethic that he presents is good. His word about even things like the Canaanite genocide, things like that, there is some good in that. But I think what it also calls us to do is we actually have to own up to the many places that Christians haven't been good. And that's one of the things that I think is hard for a lot of apologists to do, is to own up to the fact that Christians frequently haven't been good for the world and haven't been good in terms of the way they've treated others. We have to own up to that at some level. So how do you think we prepare to be good apologists? It's not a matter anymore necessarily of thinking primarily philosophically. It feels like there's a lot of hermeneutics, Bible interpretation, that pastoral touch that you were talking about. How we say something is almost as important as what we say. How do we approach training and training people for apologetics? I think one of the first things we do, this is something that I hit over and over almost every week in my Intro to Christian Apologetics course, and it's that you aren't going to be a good apologist unless you're grounded in the local church. And I think it's really important that we have to do this from the vantage of the local church. I think that, that's the, that we can't do it apart from a community. But I think the step beyond that, I would say, is you hit it exactly. You use the word hermeneutics. I found, for example, there are so many apologetics questions that are solvable simply by people recognizing that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Just simply seeing that, that solves a lot of the apologetics issues and questions. Not all of them, but there's a lot that that really does solve by seeing that. And that's just one example that I can think of in which it is a hermeneutic thing, but it's a hermeneutic that is enacted in the community and that we learn in the community. And so I think that an ecclesial, we might say, apologetic and a hermeneutical apologetic are going to be a lot more important in the future than a cosmological argument or a teleological argument. How do you see apologetics being done, or maybe you're thinking through this right now, in the wake of the Ravi Zacharias scandal? I've been really impacted, and I don't know if impressed is the right word, but a lot of the reading that I've been doing in the last year in the apologetics space has really been focused on narrative. Alistair McGrath will call it narrative apologetics. Josh Shatro will just talk about Telling, telling story. stories, telling right? Story. Telling the yeah. other story. And the reason why I feel so strongly about kind of this trajectory of apologetics is that it is hermeneutic in the fact that 
in order to do this well, you have to have this understanding, this robust understanding of the true story of the world to use Goheen and Bartholomew's language. But then there's this additional step of knowing people, getting to know people, getting to know their story, as well as getting to know the stories that they believe about reality, about themselves, about the world, and to be able to connect those stories to, to be able to connect and correct, graciously correct by trying to introduce them to this, this greater story that they already probably have shadows of belief about. And, and it strikes me, this strikes me as a, a very relational task or to, you know, to say pastoral, like I've said. And I really believe this is the way forward. And it's not only a, this isn't just here's one particular technique of apologetics. To me, it's almost here's a style, a way to relate to people, and that within this relating, you can come from all different types of apologetic methods, whatnot, that you'll be able to have all types of different various conversations, but you'll be able to do so through the context of relationship. And I think that's crucial in the apologetic task. So there was probably an isolation that was happening with Zacharias that was cutting him off from the realities of what he was even speaking about. I don't know the relationship between Ravi and the local church, right? Mm -hmm. But this was a a separate, massive parachurch movement that perhaps fell into some of the classic trappings of parachurch ministry that it's not inherent and it's not necessarily the case, but if not careful, they can allow themselves as organizations or as people to become isolated and not under the care or oversight of the local church. So just coming together here, I think uh, both Ryan and Todd both teach the area of systematic theology or theology, and we're coming at this from more of an apologetics focus. So just kind of thinking through those two different perspectives, they're going to be slightly different. What is the relationship that you all see? So what relationship do you see between apologetics and theology? Where does apologetics fit in theology? And as I look back over church history, which is more my area and the way I look at apologetics, you can go back to, say, Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, who basically says that apologetics is nothing more than a sort of an appendage at the very end of theology. Whereas then you flip it around the other side, you've got B.B. Warfield that says, he said that apologetics precedes theology. It comes before theology in some sense to validate the facts from which theology is built. And of course, we can find a lot of other things in between. But in your minds, from a perspective of theology, systematic theology, where do you see apologetics fitting in terms of its relationship to theology? Well, I would like to think that theology is always engaged in the apologetic task. If theology, I'm going to borrow from frame here a little bit, is is bringing to bear God's powerful revelation to all of life's ultimate questions, then that is absolutely going to be engaged in apologetics. And so we were just talking about the goodness of God, the goodness of his revelation. Well, heavens, that's doctrine of God right there. And if we cannot study and then articulate our doctrine of God, our doctrine of salvation, our doctrine of judgment in a manner that answers specific questions that either Christians in the church are struggling with or that those outside the church have, those questions might be an impediment to them believing, you know, as God takes them on their journey to faith. If we can't articulate our theology in such a way that answers those questions, then how good is our theology? So I would see them as hand in hand, integrated. Yeah, and I think you see sort of, even from a biblical perspective, when you see the biblical authors or those like Paul doing theology, they're always doing it within their context. (laughs) They're, They're engaged in the world, bringing to bear real transcendent truth about who God is into the everyday experience, confusion, and chaos of the world they're they're walking into and living out. 
So I want to say that there's actually sort of like a pulling together of theology, apologetics, and discipleship that should be taking place in a healthy way. I've also recognized in my classes that when I speak from just large theological categories, oftentimes the eyes glaze over until there's some handles on how this actually plays out in the world. So one of the things our world is consistently asking is not what, but why. And specifically, why does this matter? And so I think that's where you start seeing that intersection of theology, apologetics, and then to push them into the church, push them in towards that discipleship mechanism of this isn't just something to know about. This isn't just something to engage the world with. But it's actually something that we have to live out on our own and to follow Jesus with. It would have been far better for Warfield and Kuiper to listen to their contemporary, Herman Bavink, whom I have a contractual obligation to I mention. I see him behind you. I see Bavink behind you. Oh, yes. you. Right. Yeah. Also, you're, you're sort of slowly transforming into him. I don't know if you <laughs> That would be a blessing from the Lord. But he essentially says, right, that apologetics cannot precede faith, right? It can't be some prior attempt to argue the truth of revelation. Instead, it assumes the truth, and it assumes belief in the truth. And so he says, it does not, as the introductory part or the foundational science, precede theology and dogmatics. It is itself a theological science through and through, and it's one that presupposes faith and dogmatics, and now maintains and defends the dogma against the opposition to which it's exposed. And so, if those two guys just would have listened to old Herman, then we just <laughs> Everything, would have been a lot all, better. Let's just transition <laughs> this to Bobbing in Babylon now. Yes. But I mean, to your point, Eric, and to, to Bobbing's point, I mean, I think what you, even our conversation earlier about what's happening in apologetics today, sort of that transition sort of from the highly philosophical sort of those big picture meta kind of questions into these very specific, well, what do I do with my Bible when I read about X? That, I mean, I think that's what Bobbing's talking about. That's where it lands. That's where it is. That's where our sort of our battlegrounds are these days. Mm. That wasn't as good a segue as the ACDC. It wasn't. Was Bavink in a band? <laughs> was he in a band? He wasn't, but if he were in okay. a band, that's my question. I, he he would be, be in what we now call Van Halen, that for him would have been Von Holland, okay. um, that, how, he would have, okay. how he would have said it. I, I don't know. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I, that just doesn't sing, though. I, it does he, I know. It doesn't, it doesn't work as much. But he would. I think he would have been with his Dutch brethren, and I'd like to think that he would have been a heck of a keyboard player, I okay. think. That's, uh, I think that's where Bobbitt would have been. He would have been on the keys. question is, is which Van Halen would Bobbing have preferred to be a uh, part of? And that's back to TPJ. Which would you rather have played with? Oh, definitely the Sammy Hagar version. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Sammy Hagar rendition of Van Halen. Okay. He's actually thought about trying to reach out to Sammy to try to get him on the program. He's, oh, he's, he's mentioned that before. Reached, okay. <laughs> Kind of like getting Journey to the prom. Yeah, I was going to say, is that a campaign promise? <laughs> this is for you. If you listen to enough of our episodes, we will get Sam Hagar. Let me add to TBJ real quick. Did Van Halen have, I think it's Nunu Betancourt as a lead singer for a while? The extreme no. guy? No, it was Gary Sharon they had, who is a Christian. It was fascinating that Gary Sharon was their lead singer for a little over a year. Who the reason you're thinking that is because he played, he was the singer for Extreme. Nuno Betancourt is the guitar player for Extreme. But Gary Sharon is a Christian. And so if you watch the concerts, then there's a song called Fire in the Hole, which is James 3 set to music, is one of the songs. And he would pick up a New Testament and read from it some of the sections from James chapter 3 about the power of the tongue and everything like that in their concerts during that particular tour. Right the the 
I wanted to pose a question that's not a traditional apologetics question, and I'm going to try to simplify this <laughs> from the way I, I sent it in an email. But essentially, <laughs> I'm throwing Just this... Just real quick for all the listeners, the email, yeah. like I've, I'm still scrolling to get to the bottom of the email. I, yeah. I got it. Probably yeah. about 10 a.m. Yeah. I think it was pieced together. I think it was pieced together like, like like two or three emails that he kind of yep. kind of stuck together like yeah. Frankenstein's monster for us. Yeah, so, Google yeah. actually I, wrote him back and said, we cannot handle <laughs> this many words. I, I, I copy and pasted a dissertation. Essentially, that's what it is. <laughs> the background is we actually received this question from two completely different people in the period of a week. One from a listener and, and another from a friend of mine that just called me on the phone one day. And Timothy was like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't, I don't know how this fits in what we do. And so this seemed like a great place to ask the question because I think it is a question that is for pastor theologians, which yeah. the three of y'all are, and I just pretend to be. So, Plus you have the added bonus that if we get it wrong, you can just blame food trucks in Babylon. That's right. This that's absolutely right. That's, good. Good. that's right. So the question is essentially this, that these two gentlemen were wrestling with what we call this doctrine of the impassibility of God, right? That God doesn't experience emotions, right? That he doesn't have change of emotions and, and whatnot. And and this comes from, so, so there's a bunch of questions that kind of came in a stream to me and they were, so does impassibility necessarily flow from this other doctrine, this big theological words that Ryan was talking about, that maybe people's eyes are going to start <laughs> glazing over out there, right? This this other doctrine about God, the doctrine of immutability, which essentially is the biblical witness that God does not change. It's all over Scripture said different ways, right? That God is the same yesterday, today, forever, that God is not, I am not like man, changing my mind, there's no shadow of change. It's It's all over the place, right? So, does this idea of impassibility, no emotions, no change of emotions, doesn't necessarily come from this idea of God's immutability? In other words, does the fact that God never changes, does that actually imply that he doesn't have real emotions or that he doesn't suffer? And both these gentlemen went on to kind of make the same point that this question gets more difficult when we begin to think about Jesus coming onto the scene in the Gospels, right? If Jesus is the truest revelation, right, the visible image of the invisible God in Colossians or the exact imprint of his nature in Hebrews, if that's true, then what does that say about this this idea, this doctrine of of impassibility about God's emotions and not having them and not being able to suffer. And is there a way to hold those two together? Is there is there mystery here that we as we talk about this idea today that we've we've just kind of chucked aside? And anyways, my email had four hundred other words and questions <laughs> posted, but I think I think that I can stop there at least to start the conversation. And, and I said it was a, a pastoral problem because I think the area of prayers where this question really comes to the people in the pews, I hear variations of the question all the time, why pray? Does prayer work? Does prayer change God's mind or his actions? If God is unchanging and he has ordained all things before the foundations of the world, then what's the point of praying? I hear this all the time and and all of this kind of falls into the same area and the same issue, the same discussion, I think, for our people. So there are questions in there. I'm not exactly sure what they are, but I am now I'm just letting you two just reign free on, on your thoughts on this. Let me just start off and then I'll let Todd give you all the real answers here. Excellent. One thing I would do, and I think this is where a lot of the struggle happens for most people sort of in the pews, I mean, well, for all of us, to be quite honest, is just recognizing that we often don't have this sort of lens of the creator-creature distinction in play before we start talking in these categories. So we begin to take all the sort of experiences, all the emotions, all the change that I experience and begin to slowly, well, not well, almost directly, to, to apply them to, to God. 
so that there's a one-to-one correlation. And what I see, I, what I think you see in scripture is a consistent sort of breaking of that one-to-one correlation that there are connections, that there are places to sort of build bridges. But there is predominantly a distinction that we oftentimes sort of negate or we look past the way we think about who God is. So looking at God and and seeing uh, a reflection of ourselves, we should actually just pull back for a second and just ask Scripture to speak a definition or or, a revelation of who God is for us first. And, And when you do that, that's where you get sort of these strange tensions. Those tensions lie across the line of the relationship, I would say, predominantly between the transcendence of God and the eminence of God, that being who he is in and of himself, that's the transcendence, and then in the eminence, how he relates to the world he's created. And by God's grace, he is totally other than and distinct from. So we need to see that, and oftentimes that's not on the page for most Christians as they think about who God is, at least from the beginning. We just don't think in those categories, and that's what the church is there to do. We need to sort of stop and and process so that there is a transcendence. And maybe understanding what that is as best we can. And I do think there's mystery there. I do think there's things that we don't comprehend completely because it cuts across our own experience and cuts across our own nature in a lot of ways. And then, you know, mix sin into that. There's a, there's a whole other issue that's separating us. So the first place to begin is in that transcendence imminence discussion. I think that's a good place to sort of set this, this understanding between God's relationship to change, that's immutability, and God's relationship to emotions. And to recognize that when we look at God, we are looking at an infinite God. And so I would actually say before impassibility, that idea of just got to have emotions, and I would say in many ways people are saying just got to have emotions like me, I would say that that is connected obviously to immutability, but I wouldn't want to connect it to something bigger, this idea of him being an infinite God. And then when you start thinking about those categories, then you're pushing on the idea of a God who is beyond the limitations of space and time, where both of those things of change and passions or or emotions exist. So you've got to say that there's a connection, but there's also a massive amount of distinction. And so I think that sort of sets a framework to begin to have that conversation that usually isn't on the table when we start talking about those things. I think that's that's a great place to start. And then when we begin to get into the nitty gritty of it, I have emotions. I well, react to that's, emotions. That's the that's best yes, oh, Okay. Theoretically, okay, pretend pretend I have emotions. Let's just say this. Todd's son just got married a couple of weeks ago. Do you know when I found out that his son was getting married? Like, I know Todd. Like, he was like, oh, hey, I think my son's getting married this week. I mean, that's what, okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I told you multiple times, I'm offended you forgot. (laughs) I think it was in Garrett's email. I think it was in there. And so I I totally bypassed (laughs) it. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, so I have emotions. You have emotions. I have emotions, right? So for me, my emotions often are reactionary, and so we think, well, well, isn't that what God does? And volatile, and yeah, it could be sometimes, yeah, and that makes me authentic. And then people read on the pages of Scripture; they read God responding to things appropriately. And the first thing I would say is that, of course, God responds even on the pages of Scripture in a manner that is consistent with His character, which never ever changes. And we would probably wonder about a God who had a kind of character who didn't respond to sin or who didn't respond to repentance and who didn't react with joy. But we're also told throughout scripture, just exactly what you said, that God does these things. And many of these things we do and we relate to, but we're also told, but God's not like us when he does these. And so we repent, we change our mind of things. Why? Well, because we get more information usually. Well, that's not a thing for God, right? Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't get more information. And yet when the situation changes, he responds in time, the God who created time, right? Responds in time appropriately to that. And, and we see that all through the page of scripture. Does that make him not immutable? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. That just means he's interacting appropriately with his, with his creation. 
And I mean, just to lay all my cards on the table here, I would say that, yeah, God has emotions. I, I don't think that the passages that speak of God rejoicing or getting angry or jealous, those are anthropopathisms, that is figures of speech where we attribute something other than the actual emotion to God for the purpose of telling something about God. No, I think, I think our emotions are imago Dei, that we have them because God does. But his exercise of them is different than ours, of, of course. Right, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think there's a, there's a infinite, going back to where we were, there's an infinite perfection to his emotions that's informed by all of his character and all of his nature. So our tendency oftentimes, and, and this is what, I mean, systematics does this and sort of lends itself to this, is to sort of, you know, think of God's character as like a, a pie that we just sort of carve up into different attributes. But what we want to say is that those things are all interconnected and interrelated. So what's happening when, you know, just think about Jonah, when God relents of bringing punishment to the Ninevites there, that is an expression of his covenant promises, right? that he's, he's extended this call to change now, you know, change now, or you will receive judgment, or, or very directly, sort of this, you will receive judgment. And he relents of that judgment because they did respond appropriately to that call to what? To, in many ways, to reflect his perfect character, to remove themselves from idolatry and to respond in repentance. And so, what you see often here is, and what I want to emphasize is that. Immutability and impassibility are not things that sort of limit God and say, oh, here's a stoic God isolated over in the corner and, and we have experience that he doesn't. I want to say, you know, that our concepts of emotions and our concepts of change are much more limited and smaller than his as it's connected to his whole infinite being, his whole infinite nature. So really what you see, I, I think in a lot of the, the engagements, with God and his anger is actually rooted in his perfect holiness as it comes to bear on a world that is not holy, a world that is limited in their being, but also limited and, and broken in their moral nature and moral character. So it's, it's actually an expression of an infinite holiness. I would say what you see in the in the world is he responds to people, an expression of his infinite love, and ultimately a love that can accomplish what he sets out to accomplish in this world. So these are actually, instead of saying, okay, these are things that are weird and they don't really matter to me, they actually do because they actually bring with it a level of hope, something that my love cannot accomplish. God's love can because it is connected to his infinite nature. And for me to actually, and this is one of the things I think is massively important for our world, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, usually what we are doing is reverse engineering God's love. We are saying, this is the way I experience love, this is what I think love is, this is what the world tells me love is, and then we pin it to God and say, why aren't you like this? When in reality, I think what should be happening, and I think what Scripture is pointing us to, is look at God's love and its infinite nature and rethink what your understanding of love is as you engage it in your current cultural context and your own experiences, so that it's actually rewriting us to be less finite <laughs> in a sense. And then, you know, you probably have a whole other show, Garrick, to talk about this Christologically. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, and that's, that's, that's where things huge. went really crazy. Yes, 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 yes. That's where your email went really crazy. But I do think this helps us with that first question we talked about, about the idea of, for example, the Canaanite genocide and things like that, because part of the issue when somebody is raising that issue is there's an assumption that we have certain emotions, therefore we magnify the emotions we have to be really, really big, and that must be what God has or ought to have. And that's that's really the direction we do this sort of working from ourselves upward and kind of see God as the magnification, the multiplication of what we have. But drawing both here from C.S. Lewis's miracles as well as from Thomas Aquinas, and what I think we ought to see is, and I think this is what you're getting at, is that God has these emotions in a perfect way. We have them in a partial way, but then added on top of that partialness of it, we have sin entered into it. So we have them in a distorted way. So we have 
the same emotions God has in some sense, but we have them in a partial and a distorted form. And we, we have them and, but we have them because God had them first and God had them perfectly. Whereas we have them finitely, partially and distortedly. To bring all of the threads together, I believe strongly that this will be so much more difficult if this task, these conversations are had apart from the context of relationship, a building of a relationship of trust. And I think a part of connecting and correcting people's story to the greater, the true story of the world is I think that we need to be also inviting them into and to see our community of faith, which is what TBJ mentioned earlier about apologetics has to be connected to the church. I think that folks, while we're having these discussions, also should be able to see this community of faith that we've placed ourselves in this tradition and this authority that we have willingly placed ourselves under so that all of these conversation streams, all of these inputs kind of come together to give people a a fuller picture of what it is that we're saying rather than relying on really good argumentation, (laughs) right? Or rather than constantly searching and reading all these books for the the silver bullet argument that's just going to wreck someone's worldview and tear it all down so that you can immediately build it back up and voila, they place their trust in Jesus. So anyways, I think it's all of these apologetic threads that, yeah. that we've mentioned throughout our conversation that help make this possible. Yeah, and when we do that, we're we're basically going all the way back to Aristides in the early part of the second century. If you look at Aristides, his Apologia to Hadrian, what he does is say his primary, the core of what he's saying there, he says, look at the church, look at the people of God, look at how we care for others, look at how we do life, look at that, he says to him. And then he says, go on after that, he says, read the scriptures after that. But it's just beautiful. The core part of Aristides' Apology in about 125 AD is look at the church and look at how we live, look at this and see if you do not see truth there. And I think that's what we're actually doing. We're saying, look, your storyline can't account for this, but there's a community of people that though imperfect, though we fall short, there's a community of people where we are living out through the word and through the sacraments and through our lives together, we are living out a life that can actually make sense of the world as it's experienced. I think that's helpful, even as people are coming to it, right? They're looking for truth to be experienced and to see it played out live in other people's lives and in the local body. Yeah, I think that's a very, very healthy way to go. It's also very convicting. Yeah. The church has to do better, I think, in a lot of ways. So, And then if just to, to tie it back to one other question that you had there about prayer and God answering prayer, our theology has to be livable because it's meant to be livable. God created a world that we exist in. I I know that sounds like a tautology, right? But our lives are to be lived. And so if our understanding of God's character is such that when we read the scriptures commanding us to pray and the Bible telling us that God answers prayer and our theology gets in the way of us actually living that out the way that God would have us do, then there's something wrong with our theology at that point. Of course God answers prayer. Of course he does. There's a whole Bible that testifies to that. And so we need to live our lives in light of that reality. Now, does that mean that it's a simple matter of explaining how a a meticulously sovereign God, how he engages with prayer? Well, no, there's a little heavy lifting to do there. But if my doctrine of providence or immutability gets in the way of me praying, The solution is not to chuck prayer. The solution is I better amend my doctrine of providence at that point. Yeah, and to rethink and maybe build out a bigger understanding of what prayer is. There you go. I think that's another thing that's oftentimes missed is the fact that prayer itself, you know, we've sort of boiled it down into here's my wish list. This is going all the way back to Pearl Jam, Garrett. This is here's my wish list. Please fulfill these things. And then when he doesn't, then that wrecks my faith. When in fact, we've got to do something maybe more than just providing God with our wish list and our prayers. And I think actually part of it is 
meditating and speaking back to God these very beautiful truths of his immutability and his impassibility. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I went to a Michael W. Smith concert one time, and at a break, Man, he you says, were all over the place today, Todd. I, yeah, I know. pick a lane. No, I know. <laughs> at the break, so this is not going to be on the podcast. We're not. This talking. is going to be on the podcast. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> they have access. They can do whatever they, they want. Do whatever they want. So, so it's break time. The band goes off. Michael W. Smith comes and he sits down on the stage. He goes, this is my favorite time because this is where I get to talk to you. And he's like, I have the gift of encouragement. I just want you to know. I, I have the spiritual gift of encouragement. And this and is where I get to exercise it with you. And so like my ears are up, it's like, man, this is a dude who says he's got the spiritual gift of encouragement. And now he's going to encourage me. And he goes, and so here's my word to you. Keep looking up. Mm. Keep looking up. Mm. And, and I just remember thinking, that's it? <laughs> that's no. your spiritual gift? I've got all the spiritual gifts. If that's the exercise of your spiritual gift, keep looking up. I've, I've never felt so ripped off in, wow. in, in my life. Let's get that in a fortune cookie? What's the deal? <laughs> that's, what is this?